my uh, portfolio stuff is not ready yet. So um, definitely, I don't even think I have it checked in, to be honest. It might just be living on my machine. I'm living dangerously. You're living no very damaged, dangerously. You need oh, to- man. You know, it rains every once in a while, so you never know. It's kind of... It's cloudy outside. Your computer, it's, might, oh, man. your computer might not oh, work. Oh, man. My computer might not make it. That's not good. So yeah. I might actually check that in before I leave here, but... statement I want, I want you to hear i want to hear your opinions on this oh yeah yeah a lazy developer is a great developer hmm. how what is your reasoning <laughs> <laughs> well l- laziness is uh, clearly an inherently good quality for a developer isn't it isn't it not just being lazy is a good good uh, good sign of an employee there isn't it no no absolutely not so. the idea behind this this quote is that the laziness issues or or kind of it allows you to come up with creative ways of solving problems and saving yourself time. Because mm-hmm. we all know that developers will spend a lot of time just to save themselves minutes. You know, hours of planning can save you minutes of coding, that sort of thing. So, minutes of coding? You could have just coded coding. it and then you refactored it. You could have just coded it. it and then refactored it and refactored it again. But then, you know what? Refactoring is not that fun. I don't know. I like it. Sometimes it's necessary, but it can very easily devolve into, oh, we're not really getting further. We're just getting ourselves back to where we were. And it's not a fun feeling. It's like getting your car fixed. Mm -hmm. Right? You're spending a bunch of money and your car runs exactly the same as it did before. Except it doesn't break. Except it doesn't. Well, technically, yes, but (laughs) you're not improving the status of, you're not upgrading your car. No, your car car. will never be as good as it was when you first got it. Well, like two months, two, three months after you got it when it's broken. Yeah, probably like 20, maybe like 15, 20,000 miles in. That's yeah. actually a lot further. That's like a year-ish. You got, yeah. you got to put some, some miles in because you get that nice layer of like road grime in there and then it starts being impervious to that. I mean, I mean earlier depends on, on the kind of car, I guess. Well, depends on what kind of roads too. Mm-hmm. We here in Los Angeles are, are very famous for our lovely roads. Yeah, potholes galore. Yeah, the, the, the best. Only the best roads. Mm-hmm. The very, I'm doing the hands. The very best. And it's, it's it's like a, a midair slinky. Just pretend <laughs> like you're you're doing the what's that instrument that you go like this? The um, harpsichord or dun, no? Dun, dun, dun. This was an episode Not the of ukulele, Mad Men. The uh, this was an episode know. of Mad Men. Yeah, it's the thing where you like squeeze it. I know what you're talking about. I just yes. don't know what it's called. Da, na, 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 na. Not a banjo. Banjo. I, just name an instrument. It's not a theremin. Is it a harpsichord? No, a harpsichord is like a non, isn't that like a non-theremin version of a theremin? A non-theremin? It's like a version that actually has... A theremin actually doesn't really look yeah, like has an light. instrument at it all. It has lights, Yeah, right? it's weird. But then like a harpsichord is the one that has the chords, I a, thought. A harpsichord... Is it not just a, a big old harp that you can... We gotta look this up. Oh man, Jamie, can you put that on the screen for us? I'm just gonna Google weird instruments. Weird instruments. No, this is too weird. Way too weird. It's not like it's not a xylophone. I feel like it's a xylophone. Organ, theremin, glass, harmonica, harp. Uh, It's probably on this list. What if it is a harpsichord? It might actually be. Yeah, I guess because a harp. No, it's not a harpsichord. It's something. Something else. 
I don't know. I don't know how useful this is. The big old thing that you 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 take. I know the two. what you're talking about. It's though it's in the polka music. Polka <laughs> instruments. Is that where it comes from? I think so. The only kind of instrument is the only kind of music I ne- I said I would never listen to as a kid. My recollection of this instrument is from an episode of Mad Men where Joan plays a French song. She sings a, a French lyric and she plays. Accordion. Accordion. It's literally the thing that you code. <laughs> yeah, take a minute to realize that 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 you know CSS thing that you build yes. is actually that. Yes, it is. It is. Fitting that that is what that is because that is a thing that we have man, had to you deal just, with. You just front end failed. Oh man, oh man. It's like you don't even know the components. Accordion is that the technical name for it? I'm assuming yeah. it is. Accordion and yeah, that's it. It's kind of like an inline drop down. It's not like a form style drop down, but it's a. Uh, no, it's like the whole idea is that each, each one of the little layers that expands is a different topic. Yes, that's the idea. So, and it had different content within it. Remember yes. that one time we had that conversation with a designer about multi, multi accordions and single accordions? Accordions on accordions? Yeah, that was fun. That was a thing that we had to deal with sometimes because that can get pretty complicated because you have to control... Mm-hmm. Collapsing of the inners and the outer. The, yeah, sometimes yeah. You'll, if you have... Say you have four of these accordions next to each other. If you have one open already and you click on another one, yeah. what happens to the one that's open? Does it stay open or does it close? You got to tell it to close, man. Gotta Do you? Keep, you've got to keep that space. Do you? Maybe. Got to keep that space. That is a good point. There, there are schools of thought both ways. Well, right? one is that the user hasn't closed it, I would assume. And yes. the other one is that uh, you want more space. Yes. Maybe I mean, if they're clicking on something else, they probably don't care about the original thing anymore. Maybe. What if they're trying to compare? You probably should build a compare tool. That's even more complicated. Well, I mean, if they're if they're in the zone of comparing things, then... You probably would want to have a comparable view. Otherwise, you don't need to compare it. I know. It seems like maybe as a person who has been staring at multiple monitors on things for the past several years, maybe yeah. having... I'm very used to having multiple things open and looking at multiple things at the same time. I open like two screens of the same website to compare things sometimes. I've done that, yeah. Yeah. Firefox and Chrome. I have three monitors. I have all the space. I also have four desktops. See, I don't do the desktops. That's an actually inter- interesting one that you brought up because I don't do the virtual desktop. I keep everything on one desktop, but I only keep the stuff that I need up. And then I cycle through with my alt Oh, man. I keep, it gets even more extreme on my Linux computer, but like the first screen is like stuff that I'm studying. The second screen is the second desktop, which is all three monitor swipe is people that I'm communicating with. So that's where Slack and email and, you know, Gmail web view, like whatever, all kinds of stuff for communication is. Uh, LinkedIn, things like that. Question about the multiple mm-hmm. virtual workspace desktops. When you alt tab, are you alt tabbing across all desktops or just the one that you're just on? Just one. So you have to actually. Well, on Mac, it's all on on Mac. It's Linux. all and Linux. It's it's per desktop. Interesting. You can change that. I'm pretty sure in elementary you can actually set that to. What do you mean elementary? I'm just telling you. This I know, is part of budgy. Linux. What I'm know. saying this is part of Linux is that there are alternatives to everything. Mm-hmm. And how they do things. Elementary gives you some options to do certain things, and they also don't give you options to do certain things. So that's kind of the, this balance, and that's that's one of the things about Linux is that you get to kind of choose which one fits your workflow the best, right? Some mm-hmm. people just like straight Ubuntu. Some people like to use GNOME. Some people like to use KDE. Some people like to use Elementary. Some people are 
hipster neck beards and use like arch that they built themselves. And that's too much work. It's way too much work. I'm a big fan use, of Linux stuff and I, I don't even want to do that. Stuff, I just so. use Budgie. Budgie's great. Budgie's pretty good. Budgie is based on GNOME. The yeah, actual desktop environment itself was built by uh, a group that built their own uh, actual underlying operating system. So the original is not based on Ubuntu. It is now. There's mm-hmm. a, a version of Ubuntu that comes with it. Was the it was the Solus project. the Solus project, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were actually trying to build a whole new system. And they're, they ran into a lot of the same problems that anybody trying to start a whole company like that is going to run into, right? Just resources and like trying to get adoption. And there's kind of a critical mass that you have to hit before something like that gets popular enough to make an impact, especially on a very, very small market share of something like just desktop Linux on the whole. Mm-hmm. But, the stuff, but the stuff they did in Budgie was actually really good and it looks really great. Very customizable. I like it a lot. You, you still have a lot of that gnome-ish type of stuff. Uh, but they did add some some really helpful features on top of that. It's so. pretty much it's pretty good. It, it reminds me a lot of Mac because it has the same, it has like the same general stuff. Like the the, the menu can be on the left side. There's a tab bar. I mean, it has everything you need. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of that stuff. It comes from GNOME itself, which is kind of the the root of a lot of these. Well, great. Then you know it doesn't have anything weird. Oh, it has this multitasking, or, or you can you can do this paneled like multitasking overview screen. I don't oh, know what the like, key binding is for. Oh, it. it's probably that's just the alternate view of the Alt tab, essentially. Well, it's all there. And yeah. it works great. It's I've been using good. it for like ever since OEN update. Ever since updating to nineteen oh four, everything has been fine. Nineteen oh four is supposed to be a good one. It includes a very large update to the the GNOME, mm. so that's part of it. Yeah, I was having I don't weird. Know if, I don't know if. Uh, mm-hmm. Budgie's update actually includes those new packages. I think it does. I read about it. It probably does. I read that that was one of the things that, in their release notes, that was one of the things that uh, 1904 added. So that was that. It works pretty good. I've been using it a lot. Have you been been, uh, building your personal site using this Budgie operating system? I have, yeah. Yes? Yeah. How's that been going for you? Um, You know, it's different because I don't have a lot of tools that I used to have on on Mac. So I don't have... um, like paw is the thing that I miss because just from testing APIs, like I like to be able to model everything in paw. It's like a program like, um, what's that free one? I talked about it a lot. Postman. It's like Postman, Postman yeah. but it's uh, but it's not. It's like a paid program and it's a little bit smarter. Um, I think Postman has a lot of the features, but they charge you extra for it. Paw is uh, like 50 bucks and no, none of your friends have it. So it's very annoying, but it allows you to sync your, projects um, like API config to get to its own, it has like its own internal GitHub. Oh. Like built in. So then it has, if you have, if you have Paw for Teams, it shares it or it saves it on a repo that's in, it's like in their system. You can't just sync it to like GitHub. Interesting. But it has a Git like rollback feature so that a bunch of people can work on the API and like model it. And then you can do things like, you know, um, generate and base 64 stuff. You can run JavaScript against um, different fields. In the so it request. has its own like little IDE inside of it to run kind JavaScript? Of, yeah. You can run like little snippets of JavaScript scripts per, like even per um, field in an API request or f- oh. per, um, what are they called? Header. So you can say like this header is computed from something else. Oh, so that's interesting. It has a lot of plugins, like the ability to export your PAW file to Swagger. 
things like that. Or oh. import from Swagger, export to curl, export to har. So it'll it'll actually it doesn't build the whole Swagger doc for you though. Yeah, it builds the JSON. Oh, it builds the it. JSON for oh, that's and then you just inject really that into neat. the Swagger viewer, and then it yes, that's has very you. nice. But I, I, when I tried it once, it didn't. I mean, it was early on; it didn't convert everything correctly. So some of the API calls weren't there. Like some of the some of the headers weren't there and stuff, where the body params were missing in certain cases. Interesting. But I li- I liked it a lot. I don't have that, so I have to use Insomnia, which is pretty good, but it's very like bare bones. Um, and then I don't really use Postman because it just, everything you need to do with it, they make you want to pay monthly for it. And I don't like... Monthly is a bit much. It's annoying. I, we're, think, I don't think we are big fans of these subscription models. I am I, for certain I'm a things. big fan of, if you let me pay you like $100 once to have something forever, I will absolutely do that. Yeah, but that, that has been proven to not work. It, it's proven to not be profitable. That's different. Well, yeah, but they got to be profitable. Otherwise, That's they're not going to go anywhere. That's true. But the thing is, you then you swing the other way. And like, if you're charging me $20 a month for Postman, I can't I can't swing it's that. It's $8 a month per user for teams up to 50 users. But I guess that only Wait, gives you... per user? Yeah. Ooh. But then they add on like API monitoring and stuff. So then they'll do like, they'll actually make requests for you to validate that your APIs are up. They have a free plan. They show what it does. Um, I guess the only thing it adds is additional monitoring, multi-time zone email support. You can pay with a credit card. You can pay for additional monitoring calls with the pro. I don't know, but it's like I don't really, I don't really want to pay that much when I'm like when I'm typically paying for it for myself. Like the companies won't pay for it. So right. unless like your whole backend team is using Postman to validate things, or if that's like all you're doing, if all you're doing is writing APIs, then it's worth it. Or if you're building automated suites against well, they to have, test your yeah, they thing. have an automated uh, testing suite for APIs built into Postman. Will it export like? It'll, will it give you unit tests? Like, will it export I you some code that has unit tests? I don't written? know if it has unit tests, but it does like monitoring. So it'll monitor whether or not like if you set up like a correct API call and you say like monitor this call. I guess it'll make it in the backend. Uh, like are on their servers, then it'll tell you if it succeeds. So it's almost like unit testing, but I don't, I don't know. I'd have to look into There's it. There's got to be a list of cases that they are testing for in their monitoring suite somewhere. Maybe they don't give it to you, but like it's got to be. Or else how would you be able to replicate that product across different users? Yeah. That's interesting. What What is this uh, API that you're testing? Oh, my my portfolio just has like a couple endpoints. One is to retrieve like social data. So it gets basically, it'll retrieve, it's a proxy for the podcast RSS feed. Oh, okay, so it yes. pulls that in and then, what else is it doing? Um, there's a contact form that it processes through um, Lambda to send me an email. Are you doing Lambdas for both these things? Yeah. Separate ones? They're just, it's just serverless, the library. Interesting. With um, serverless HTTP, which is a library that allows you to run Express on serverless, so then your serverless function, instead of being formatted in the really interestingly and, and, and confusing way that AWS does it, it's actually just an Express endpoint. And then you build oh, an app, and then every single helpful. time it boots the uh, every single time it boots the um, the index or the handler for each endpoint, it basically will mount and run Express within one context for like one request. That's actually really nice. Yeah, it makes it so that your API ends up looking like an express endpoint. Which is fabulous. Which is what, way better. That's what we want. Yeah, because Lam- Lambda is not super 
easy to understand like because they have like this context. You can return things. You can do a callback. There's different ways to make it send back the response, and it's not very clean looking. But what they did is they basically adapted Express's request response to call back to the way serverless expects it or Lambda expects it. And then the other cool thing you can do with that is you can use the standard cores library for oh for Express. It's very helpful. And then you essentially turn off cores within API Gateway and you let it go through to the app and then the app returns the cores header. Oh, that's nice. So then you can have like dynamic cores headers because with the API Gateway, you can only have one dynamic, like flat, non-regex or non-variable based um, cores domain. Interesting. Which is something you need when, uh, you know, your web site is requesting data from the service. You need cores. Yes. So, and then I have it set up so that like local and staging can hit the staging API, you know, things like that, where I can like have the thing running in Lambda, but then still call it from my local computer. Yeah. You're going to have multiple things hitting that. Mm-hmm. You may have multiple copies of the same thing hitting that. You might have a, might have a mobile app one day. Hint, hint. hint maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I need one, but... Well, if if we have them for the show. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, you could use that to get the podcast JSON feed, yeah. I think it'd be a fun project. Be a fun thing to do. (laughs) All right. I mean, we'd have to deal with... I guess I have a... I I was thinking, what would we build the iOS app on? I have a MacBook for work. I guess we could use that. You have the other one I've been borrowing? Even the one that you've been borrowing, yeah, but it would take forever to compile on that thing. Are you kidding I don't even think I have Xcode installed on that. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I oh man, check. that would take uh, that would take an afternoon to just to install the Xcode. Yeah, but that's pretty cool. Is that the the hard part of your portfolio? Is that the easy part for you? Oh, that's easy. I built I built that API in like two hours. What's the What's the hard part? Um, CSS. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really, Craig? Tell, like tell the, us about the CSS. Tell us Tell us about a a full stack developers. Give us a full stack developer's guide to CSS. Um, so it, originally, I just installed Bulma, and then I was using Bulma. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I kind of didn't really... I don't, I'm, I'm beginning to dislike CSS frameworks that even try to prescribe how to build anything, like any kind of components. Because there's React Bulma components, then it exports like a hero, and then your, your markup... One way or another, you're going to have classes inside of your markup, but it'll actually be like React classes from Bulma or the maintainers of React Bulma components. So then it's harder to decouple yourself from it. Yes. Whereas what I ended up going with is I removed... See, what I really was trying to get at is I didn't like the way that I had built the nav and the footer. There's nothing actually wrong with Bulma because you can style it however you want, but I didn't really like how the nav and the footer were looking. Um, And I didn't really... Like I like the fact that Bulma has a has a, a flexbox grid, so it's really easy to style things, and it doesn't re- like require that you have a grid. You can just have containers and then do space between all the stuff. With, like it's literally built on flex. There's no actual call grids, so that's really nice. But then you're like, well, if it's just flexbox, why do I need pretty decorators for flexbox? I could just use flexbox. You could just use flexbox, yeah. But I mean, they do build you like certain components. Like the level component is the space between, you know, flex component that I used for the footer. It's like a generic, like horizontally, vertically aligned. Oh, to keep everything. Box. Yeah, it just right. it just keeps like the like your copyright or your like you know built in whatever 
like your name on the bottom of the footer and, and then your social links on yep. the right. It just keeps them at the same height in everything. Vertical line. Ah, oh, yes. But it's like literally you could just do, you know, space between vertical line, flex row. Vertical, vertical centering prior to things like Flexbox is the bane of my existence as a developer. Yeah. The absolute bane of my existence because there were, I think, four or five different ways to kind of hack it. Mm-hmm. And you never know which one was the one that you would need to do. Yeah, like text given, align would sometimes work, there's right? There's a text align. There's a one that friend of the show um, that we used to work with, she showed me that was hacked. That actually worked very often, but it looked terrible. It, it was something like, it was a translate transition, but it was a translate Y negative 50%. Hmm. And then some other thing like, vertical height it was like height auto or some some nonsense where if you just looked at it you wouldn't be able to tell what the hell it did mm-hmm. but putting it in actually would vertically center something perfectly every single time and I, it didn't make any sense but you know what that's css that's how it goes that's how it works what kind of uh what kind of setup are you using so you got bulma well no i removed bulma oh you removed Bulma. okay tell us what's what's, yeah, the, so, what's the next phase well it's built it's built on gatsby of course so it has um it's just like a standard Gatsby traditional retrieve the endpoints or retrieve the data from Contentful with just like the standard Gatsby source Contentful. And then there's some requests that are dynamic that um, like one of them is it downloads a, a media object from Contentful, which I realize like Contentful's um, images and media like works really, really well. Like if you upload a PDF, it'll return you the doc type and it'll return you like the the content encoding, it'll say like, you know... Uh, oh, give you all the, the attributes and stuff? It figures it out and it gives you everything you would ever need to like render it properly. That's super nice. So then all you have to do when you're downloading a link is just is just literally create a... I don't remember what I did. I don't think I put it in an image. I think it's like a href directly to the PDF. To the just, source, yeah. Just, source and and then works. whatever browser you're in, we'll figure it out. It what just to figured do it out, yeah. yeah. So I was able to download the resume. I wanted to download it live because I didn't want the path... Well, the other thing that's cool about Contentful, so yeah, so there's Gatsby and Contentful, but the cool thing about Contentful is that it has renditions for the media objects. So instead of uploading like 50 versions of something, you just upload it once and it creates a media ID. And even if you change the name of the file, the media ID is the same. Oh. So then when you go to request that media ID in your, um, like if you attach a media ID to like a portfolio object or something, instead of it returning... Uh, you having to associate, well, you do have to associate the image to the to the media ob- or to the um, portfolio, right? But then you won't have to remember what the media object is in the path this, for the source. It also gives you source oh, sets. Oh, so it's just the ID instead of the entire path from well, wherever you're calling it from. No, you associate the media object with the portfolio, whatever, and then it knows that there's like, and then you call it something like media large, media small. And then whatever's in that path when Gatsby builds will become the path of the image. So like there's all these things that makes images a lot easier to deal with. That's very nice. And then all you had, all I had to do was just like for the image, I just said media large dot source or whatever. And and then that was the source of the image. And then it also has source sets and you can do um, like dynamic resizing. That's really nice. It's it's actually pretty, pretty cool. And that that's all from the, you can get all that from the actual API call. Yeah, it's all just oh, wow. contentful doing it. It has nothing to do with Gatsby. It has nothing to do with the source contentful. It's just all straight. Because under the hood, all it is is just uh, contentful's rest calls. Like whatever they serve you back. Yeah. And so they they're just, serving all of that to, like they did all their magic on there yeah. and they're actually serving it to you just through the endpoint. That's yeah. super nice. That's really good. 
Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. And you can just build, like I built out um, like a few objects in there. So I have obviously, so I did one thing that was interesting. I created a, 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 a like a dynamic object per page. So there's like a homepage object and then an about page object, which is kind of like different than the way that you would do like WordPress. WordPress, you would create the pages within the content management system and then that would be what would generate like Gatsby's uh, dynamic definition of what the pages are. Yeah, and then you'd like fill in the fields in the page. Yeah, like, well, you would basically say like, you know, um, you would create a page type and then you would say, you know, in the in the Gatsby config or the, not sorry, the Gatsby, um, yeah, it's the Gatsby config file, I think. Not the config, the other one. There's the node one. The node, yeah. Yeah, you would retrieve all of the, all the objects of type page, but then every one of the pages has to come from the same schema. As far as I know, they're not like dynamic schemas per page. Or else it'll mess up. Well, no, like you literally can't change the schema per page. So oh, oh, if okay. like yeah, the yeah, home page, so there's a few things that are common inside of a um, each of the pages, but then there's a bunch of fields that are dynamic. So like the content page has your, or contact page has your GitHub URL. Like anything that's related to contact is there, but then I query the contact page's content to render the footer even, and then it caches it in the client. Oh, okay. So then I, I query it twice, but I only query it, it queries it twice um, at build time, but then it never requests it from Contentful again because of gotcha. Gatsby. Yeah. So the footer makes a request for the contact data with a different query than the contact page does. But like, I don't know, the whole point I'm trying to get at is that the pages are loosely coupled to the pages in the code, but I'm a developer. Like I know that that's how it works. Like I don't, yeah. I don't need to like make it it doesn't it have to be one to one. Like it doesn't have well, to be. Well, it, it is. It ended up being one to one, but like it doesn't have to be idiot proof. It's not like someone's going to try to add like a new page type and expect it to show up. Like I'm going to add it <laughs> to the CMS. If I were to like say, you know, I want a new page type of like, um, if I want a new page type of like, um, I don't know, help donate donate give me give me money. It's not just going to like I'm not going to expect that to magically show up on the CMS. Okay. So it's a it's like a one to one relationship that I've created, and then the other objects are I created a portfolio object which is uh, like projects essentially. I think it's project, but then they're shown on the portfolio page, and then I created um, a section for like research. I called it research because a oh. lot of people ask me all the time like where do you learn all the things that you know? So it's like on the website it's going to say hey I subscribe to. JavaScript, you know, um, JavaScript Weekly or whatever, and it'll be a research item. I don't know. I haven't quite finalized the name, but it's just like a place for people to realize, like, you know, where do I go to learn all this stuff? Oh, it's like Udemy's on there, and I just have a little blurb about why I like Udemy. That's a good. That's a good spot. I've heard that referred to as the what I use page, the what I like page, the yeah. resources page. I've seen what I use pages quite a bit, like. A lot of podcasters that I listen to a lot of times will have pages on their own sites that say like, people keep asking me about what hardware I use. Here's mm -hmm. a whole list. Yeah, that's I, what I'll that, probably have one of those on my page just because that'd be fun to type up. Yeah, that's what that page is. I don't know what I'm going to, what I can, I could rename it to whatever I want and uh, I can change what it shows. But right now it shows all those things. And then I have, what else do I have? I have a me page, which is like the about that's going to be fun because I don't like writing about myself. That's fun. I to figure out how to put content in there. And then, uh, there's a homepage, obviously, and then there is, let's see, there's me about research. Oh, there's like a skills page, which is like a skills matrix between 
like specialties, like backend engineering, front end engineering, and all the things that I know within that, that's going to be the hardest one because I need to like style Nuka Carousel and I don't know how to style things. Nuka Carousel is actually not too bad. Uh, Ken Wheeler, in his infinite wisdom, actually did a pretty good job. He did change some of the names of things. So if you are coming from the original Slick Slider, then it's going to be a little bit different. Also, the, the paradigm is a little bit different because he because React is different on how it handles mm-hmm. things. So the way that you handle some of those properties is a little bit different, but it's actually not too bad. So yeah, that'll be a fortunately, fun one. I would I've, like to hear about hear about your experience with that with that carousel. I've never styled slick, so I don't. Oh well, oh geez, I'm not I'm not I'm coming. Actually, fresh. Actually, that might that might be better. You're coming fresh. You're le- learn the API from scratch, so you'll probably yeah. be okay. What else is there? So there's that page, which is going to be interesting. I did associate the. I associated this, the skills are like a skills object and then I associated specialties, which is another object and then I linked them. So it's not a two-way relationship. Which it's I not kind many of, to many? That seems like it would be many to many. It should be, but it, I either didn't realize how to do that or didn't put enough thought into it. But it basically there's a bunch of skills that own a specialty. I think of the way I thought about it is there's more skills than there are specialties. So there's like six specialties and then a hundred skills. Where does GraphQL go? Uh, that would probably be under, I think I have it under backend engineering, but yeah, that would be like a full stack. I don't know. I could add another category for full stack, but isn't full stack just front end and backend. Yeah. But I would say that learning how GraphQL works is kind of like GraphQL is the glue that makes you a full stack developer these days. That's actually a perfect description of what GraphQL is. So yeah. makes a lot of sense. Cause otherwise you back in the day, you would know how to build APIs, but you wouldn't know you might not know how to build the front end or you would know how to build the front end, maybe not care about the APIs, but like the person who knows GraphQL knows both. So I don't know. So I did that and then I was able to associate the skills. I had to basically do a front end loop over all of the skills to figure, the, all the specialties to then join them on the skills that have that specialty, which if it was a two-way bind, I could have, I could probably solve this in GraphQL as I'm getting at because then you can query for skills. Yes, that's true. You know, specialties where the skills of foreign relationship is this. And I don't know, I just didn't put enough thought into that either. But it works. I mean, I'm, I was just trying to get all the content onto the pages and then I was going to figure it out. Um, and then the other thing it has is a connect page, which has a form. And when you submit the form, it actually sends me an email. Oh, nice. Through an interesting method to yes. try to get around it costing a lot of money. And then the last page is a blog that I haven't written any articles for that oh, I figure out. the blog. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And then what else is it? So those are the pages. Um, I spent the better part of Sunday night like getting all the content for all the projects, which was a big undertaking because I had to find links and some images. That, some of that stuff doesn't, some of it doesn't not, exist isn't anymore. Isn't there anymore, yeah. Yeah. So or I, let, let us rephrase. Some of that stuff is no longer publicly facing. Yeah. Code yeah. still, code still exists because code is forever. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and then I've almost got all the content figured out for projects. I think I got to go back through and see how the the Gatsby uh, or sorry the contentful rich text parser works to make sure it like does everything like lists and all kinds of stuff because you could basically use a rich text field and then there's a lot like a plugin from Contentful that'll actually parse it into React components. So it's Gat- oh. it's Contentful's React rich text parser, but oh, they're, they're one and you can customize it. So you can say like, if you ever see like a, a markdown file with this particular property, it would know how to render it. Is that open source? Yeah, man. It's contentful wants you to use their stuff. So yeah. That seems pretty cool. I mean, it's closed source and the fact that it's owned by the contentful org, but I mean, it's not something they but that, pay for. That tool in and of itself, you just go on GitHub and download and use it. Is it like an MBA package? Cause that seems like it would have use yeah. outside of 
No, I think it, it might be specific to how, so they maintain it because they have their rich text editor turns into JSON. And then what they send you back is actually a JSON field of all the content that's in the rich text parser. But it's been parsed already? It's literally just JSON. Yeah. Oh, okay. It'll say like, you know, first object in the JSON is a list. So like they've translated the markdown already? They basically, yeah, they translate whatever is in the contentful editor to JSON and then send it to you. And then their library parses the JSON and renders it as, as React oh, okay. markup. So the, 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 the parse occurs after you get the data back. Yeah. Okay. They send it. So they basically, yeah, they, there's two-way parsing. They encode it in JSON. And then when you get it, you decode it into markup. So it seems like you could take that library and use it on any source of JSON, can you? Potentially, but it has to conform to their JSON schema, the way that they write JSON. So I don't Maybe know if Maybe you it could would. write an extension. Maybe you could fork it? I don't know. There's plenty of JSON parsers, but sure. Maybe theirs know. is nice. Maybe there's a way to configure it with like a custom schema or something. That would be an interesting project. You should check it out. That sounds like fun. I have so many things on my plate. I am not going to look at that. Greg, the most important part of your site, now that we've heard all these well, pages. You haven't, you haven't heard all the, the, the one more thing. What's one the one more? Okay. What's, the one more thing. One more thing. <laughs> yeah. So when I removed Bulma, I added, um, I was looking for like a micro CSS framework. So I looked at water CSS, which you sent me. Yes. Um, What'd you was, think? It looked cool, but I, I, there was one that I found that's like more my style. It's called uh, terminal.css. Oh, really? And it looks more like my kind of what I would what I would want. Does it look like a terminal? Um, like all the text is like monospaced by default, and then oh, I like it. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I like it. Thief, we're gonna have the same website. Well, you know CSS. I well, so I'm I'm actually. It's, I'm glad you mentioned this because I am kind of in the same boat as you are. I'm, I'm working on a personal site. I'm actually using a water CSS based setup. So I really like the water CSS dark, mm-hmm. which is actually my my adaptation of the water CSS dark version actually looks a lot like the dark version of the terminal CSS that you just mm-hmm. sent me. So mm-hmm. this is actually kind of funny that you sent me this. This looks great. I like this. Is this yeah. was this implemented in the thing that you showed me earlier today? Yeah, that's what it's using. Okay. Yeah, I spent cool. all the weekend removing Bulma and adding, basically adding content, removing Bulma, restyling the header, the the nav, the footer, and the generic um, body to be similar because Bulma has containers and columns and stuff, whereas Water or sorry, uh, Terminal has a container, but it's only sixty m's wide or whatever. So I got I got to do a lot more styling, basically. Very nice. It it looks really good. I actually like this a lot. Are you going to implement any sort of? Oh, it does have highlight JS. Okay, it does. And I'm going to pull. That's one of the the other reasons why I picked it because I know that my blog is going to probably have code snippets, and I want to have my own custom theme for it. And I think highlight allows you to have like you can put in your own super cool themes for. I think it's just a well. It's more CSS. Well, but I mean, there's the people have made highlight plugins that make like solarized dark. Text hot color or like highlight JS or highlighting code markup. Yeah. yeah, that is one thing that I have never, ever, ever, ever had any intention of trying oh, to tackle. Writing a, a syntax highlighting theme. I don't want to write one, but highlight JS does that, and then they have themes. But I want to have. I definitely want to have my own style on the. I just don't want to write. Theme. I don't want to do that. I don't want. To, it just seems like so much because it's like, what do you do for function words? What do you do for the same variable thing. words? It's the same thing as what do you do for single equals? What do you do for double equals? Yeah. What do you do? You can for put your, your own touch ligatures? on it. What do you do for your 
What if you have a parentheses? What if you have a parentheses inside another parentheses? What if you have two parentheses inside of a curly, inside of another parentheses, inside of another curly? Yeah, that sounds amazing. That's what I do all day to my editors. Oh, that's so uh, it's That's so how much. IntelliJ is. You can literally that's define so everything. Much. I don't want to. That's my point. Well, then you just download a theme. You just download, download the Solarized themes. if you're like, or you download use Monokai or whatever. Like I've most of the common switched. ones are there. I've switched to, actually, like within the last week, there have been a couple that have come out that are very... I use Horizon. I'm going to say purely. Horizon's a good one. I like Horizon a lot. Horizon's one. Um, I've also been switching back. I've been switching back and forth between Horizon. And there's one called Outrun. Yeah. And then there's another one called 1984. I think I've seen 84. I've seen them all. I spent a lot of time. So here's the thing. 1984 is brilliant because guess what comes first in the list of alphabetically sorted list of themes or, or extensions in Visual Studio Code? The, the theme that starts with the number one, 1984. Oh, okay. So it literally is the first one on the list. Hmm. Brilliance, absolute brilliance. But these are very like purpley and kind of neon and kind of 80s-ish, but like kind of dark, Yeah, which I really like. I, I found that I am starting to prefer not a straight black background, but a more kind of bluish or like a deeper not straight black, so that the contrast isn't as hard. Oh, 1984 looks pretty cool. 1984 is good, and the other one is Outrun, and Outrun has two versions. It has a, one called Electric, and then I think the other one's called Night, maybe, or something like that. But uh, one of them is kind of more, one of them is a little bit darker than the other one. That's it. But I've been kind of bouncing around between those two. Yeah. Those two or three. They're all kind of very similar. Anyway, I agree with you. I would also like to have mine set up that way, but I feel like it's going to be too much work for me. I might just kind of... It's one of the only things I'm, that I want to do. I might just... <laughs> uh, I might just bail and just use like default Monokai because I know everybody's seen it and like is familiar I with want, it. I want my own touch on it. So I'm going to spend time to make that work for that, sure. That'd be pretty clever. So ha- yeah. Have you, uh, have you made any fun tricks on your 404 page? Not yet. I mean, I built... I, it's there, but no... I haven't. No. Isn't that isn't that usually the domain of where you do weird, crazy, fun stuff? I haven't stuff? gotten to fun, crazy stuff. I'm still building it. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I got to... The only other thing I got to finish is I got to do... I need to spend more time on styling the... All the... all Pretty much all the pages. The um, blog, I want to implement something similar to Dan the Homie did like coffee icons with how long it takes to read something. How many coffees? Oh, yes. The... Uh, the how long it takes to... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he he nailed the coffee thing. That's his thing. I just want to do something that says like this is gonna like like a medium. It's gonna take ten minutes to read this or whatever. Yeah, I wonder how he. I'm gonna go look at that. Though, real quick. I'm pretty sure there's either a library or he just wrote it. You literally just take the amount of words that I, are in the article and divide it by the. Yeah, words per minute I'm guessing. I was just thinking about like words how WPM. he actually came up with that calculation. It's got to be words pretty divided common. by something. It's like people probably read at sixty words per minute, and there's two thousand words, and it's this much time. Something like that. Yeah, it's probably super easy. So I'm going to do that and then I was going to do the custom the custom style for the code that's on the site and what else was I going to do on the blog? Um, oh yeah, I got to add like a Gatsby RSS plugin and then configure it so that it RSSs the blog. So you can post it elsewhere? Yeah. Maybe to a little site called dev.2? Probably. If that's I, good, if I get blog. that much, you know, blogging, then sure. Well, it, it, it's good to have your your content posted in multiple places um, because you never know where somebody will read it. This is something I've I've yeah. seen other content creators talk about where you can't really just focus on one, say, social media channel. Like 
if you're a YouTuber, you can't just only be on YouTube. You kind of have to be like on Instagram also and also on Twitter and like all these things because you never know where your audience is mm-hmm. and they could find you in different ways. So ha- creating your own RSS feed of your own content to be kind of syndicated other places is a great idea. I mean, yeah. There's got to be a Gatsby plugin for that that just does it for you, right? I think there is. Or would you pull it straight from Contentful? Well, the the blogs are already pulled from Contentful, so there's a blog object in in there, and then it essentially it's there's like two of the you can create these templates that the the Gatsby node file reads. There's only two of them that basically generate pages on the fly, like the page templates. Yeah, yeah, it generates a page for each pro- project, and then it generates a page for every blog entry. Right. And then the other cool thing that my blog has, we talked about it a while ago. I don't know how much I talked about it, but basically it has a command palette. So yes. you can do yes. the oh, commands. So I finally got it to work in Linux when I, I had to re... That was one of the hardest things to restyle when I removed Bulma was that I lost the modal. And then I was like, I know how to write a modal without using a plugin, but I was like, I'm not going to... I don't I don't care enough. It takes a long time. So I just downloaded the React Simple Modal yes. library, which is pretty common. It's super simple. Because uh, Terminal doesn't have any components. No, it doesn't. It's just the CSS. It's and the one only one you really, sheet. the only one you really need is the modal, in my opinion. Because everything else you can just kind of style. You don't want everything. You don't want like a Bootstrap hero. No, but the one that does come in handy, in my experience, is if you choose to use a hamburger menu. That one's a little bit tricky to do by hand. Yeah, I don't want a hamburger menu. I like how I don't know. We'll see. How many links do you have in your nav? Too many. Right now, it's like half the mobile page, so I might need one. You might need one, or you can just stack them up. Yeah, I mean, I gotta, I gotta learn how to do uh, breakpoints and stuff, so I'll figure that out. <laughs> or I'll just download a, I'll just download a hamburger menu. So maybe hamburger in. menus are tricky. That's that's the one thing that I've done. I've tried to do it by hand a couple of times. It's never been worth it. Never been worth doing it by hand. It's always worth looking for some sort of package. And that is that is what being a lazy developer is all about, though. Yeah, and there's like way too many. It's like half the page. That's a lot. Um, you can switch those to uh, all you do is with the the smaller breakpoint. You can just set the widths of each link uh, of each link to a shorter width. And what'll happen is is if they display in line, then they'll just come in line instead of stacking on top of each other. That's a pretty easy one. It's a good yeah. one to get your feet wet, and especially if you are like Greg and. I think you don't know CSS, but you really do. I mean, it's looking, it's not looking that bad. It looks great. For where it's at. It looks great. I got a bunch of stuff to do. The other thing I did, the last component that I'm going to talk about is I built a dark mode toggle, which I didn't really build because I just looked at one of the websites. Somebody detailed it like pretty well on one of the, you know, I don't know, I don't know if it was like CSS tricks or something. They you didn't look like on a, Dan DeHomey's site? Because that's where I, I that was did. the first place I've seen it. He has it for sure. Um, but he only changes two colors with it, which is not a cop out, but it's like it's it's one of the easier case. Yeah, use I mean, cases. it might be all he wanted to do, but yeah, you usually have to. Really, all you have to do is change the font color. And the you basically color. invert the font color in the background. Yeah, that's pretty much all you need to do, and you have most of it. But you see, I even did. I inverted the fill on the on the um on the toggle itself. No, down here on the oh on the icons on yeah. What are those things oh. called again? The SVGs. I basically inverted the fill. The icons, yeah. Are those uh, were they from Font Awesome? No, I think I down. I don't remember. You just downloaded them. I think I just downloaded. There's a couple different. I have Font Awesome those. is installed on here. I just I I didn't. I tried to get it to work. I think I was using it for, like the modal close or something. 
I had it working, but it, I don't know. Fun Awesome is a pretty good library. Is there a React implementation of yeah, Fun Awesome? There is. It's called, uh, there's like R A F A or whatever. Oh. Or F A. Yeah, there's like a whole. <laughs> There's like a whole thing where you basically just create like a standard component and then inside of it, you put the text and it'll say like FA times. And it renders as the SVG. It renders that's as the perfect. SVG. That's exactly how it works in just regular plain HTML too. So mm -hmm. that's actually great. Yeah. So I don't know. I have I have it on there, but I don't really plan on using a lot of icons. So I... Sometimes you work. Moderation yeah. is good. Yeah. So I don't know. The dark mode works. It saves it in local storage, so it remembers it. It apparently doesn't work in Firefox. It uses um, custom CSS properties the way that I found out how to do it. You basically add a data parameter to the to the uppermost root element. And then with CSS, you can basically say, does the CSS have this uppermost root element? And then if it does, it'll change the root regular CSS variables. It's the CSS properties which I don't think is supported in a lot of things because it, I think, I don't think that the CSS properties are what's breaking in Firefox. I think it's actually the root data element. So Dan the homie changes a theme property on his, on the body on tag. The head. No, it's like in the head. It'll change a theme prop. But he, and I think he, he, adds, he adds classes. I think to he does body both because you need, you, I think you need both. You basically, you need both. And then the other thing I did with this one is that I have the new Safari um, prefers dark mode property. Oh, that's an interesting one. But one thing I learned uh, having fun with this is that CSS properties don't switch. You would, you would think that this wouldn't necessarily be a problem, but it actually is. Um, if you use SAS variables, because for some reason I always use, like I don't know enough about CSS, but I always put SAS in because it just makes sense to me the way that it works. I don't really know how to style a bunch of stuff in SAS and CSS is like catching up, just straight yes, CSS modules. Straight C it's like straight native CSS is catching up to a lot of things. Yeah, that, I like, don't know if I really need SAS anymore. Uh, but as much as I know. It depends. You can do breakpoints with regular CSS. You can do breakpoints. You can do variables yep. and you can do scope, block scope CSS uh, modules. They're also adding nesting as well. Yeah, so it's, and, and even with BEM and the way that React works, you typically don't nest anyway. So, no. and if you're using style components, it does the nesting for you also. So, yeah, but I'm not using style components oh. because I don't, I don't want to mix, um, I don't want to mix CSS, CSS classes, and components so much because I'm not doing a ton of CSS. My site is actually not going to be that complicated. I intentionally want it to be simple. Yes. So it's like, I don't really know if I need style components. Maybe, I guess, to show off, but it's not really like a necessity. Also, taking something like a full style sheet like Terminal or Water and converting that into style yeah. components is one of those refactors that you don't really get really that far ahead for doing a whole lot of work. So yeah. I totally agree with you on that point. That's something I ran into as well. And that's why like Bulma, for instance, has a bunch of... like Bulma is just straight CSS, but then they have the React Bulma components where they basically built out React components that encapsulate those styles, but it's not documented well. No, So it's a not. lot of the properties that you can define to things aren't fully defined. They are in their storybook files, but then you have to go look at the source of the storybook half the time to figure out how to style things. Is storybook still a thing? Yes, it is. I feel like I see it less and less and less these days. It feels I mean, more like... I I don't, I don't mean that to be mean, but I feel like there was a point in time where Storybook was the thing. It was the only thing. That was because they were pushing it. Kadira, like, owned, that org owned it. I don't know what the company is, but then they basically dropped it and made it open source. Yeah, and then and it, it became kind of, a, kind of an afterthought. Yeah, and it's also really hard to structure all of your components into Storybook so that you can actually get them into the UI. 
Yeah, it's just a lot of extra work. And if you're not building like with a, there's other libraries that do the kitchen sink kind of thing. There's some unique things that Storybook does that's really cool. Like you can build plugins for it. Like I built a plugin for, I mean, it's out of date right now and people have been complaining because I haven't updated it. But basically if there's a React or if there's a Redux state change triggered by your component, it'll log it to Storybook. So I figured out how to do that. was pretty cool. So like Storybook is pretty neat. It'll like down in the bottom in the widget section where they call the knob section, it'll just tell you like the state update that happened and the parameters that came out of the component. That's really nice. So you can kind of test it and debug it and see how the the Redux actions change. But then they changed the way that Storybook plugins worked, and then they changed the way that I think they changed part of the way that the React um, or sorry the Redux it was using it was essentially hijacking an event off the Redux Dev Tools that makes it appear in the Dev Tools and then putting it into Storybook. It would listen to that same event. Oh, interesting. And then inject it in, and then they kind of changed it. And now it's out of date. But I did I did build that. Yeah, it probably doesn't have uh, like hooks or anything. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like early on when I was first starting to write React, I was starting to use Storybook quite a bit because it was kind of like your mm-hmm. your dev environment specifically for React. And then I feel like I haven't touched Storybook in probably a year. Yeah, I think if I was building a really big project, I'd probably look into that space and see what the newest tools are and then maybe implement something like that. But just Storybook required a lot of decoration, especially when I was using it, you had to decorate it to make Redux work. It's kind of like if you unit test components that use Redux, you have to mock the provider yes. and then do there's a bunch of extra work you have to do and you had to do all of that work with Storybook too. There's a lot of setup. There's a lot of setup for every component. Not a lot of game. Well, there's a game. Like you can, you can create a page where people can play with and, and change the knobs and the components and change Locally. the colors. And, no, no, no. You can actually, you can host Storybook on a server. Well, on like a web server. That, though? Because then your designers can look at it. Oh, geez. And they can start playing with the components. And like as you change the components, you can basically publish the most bleeding edge version of the components to the storybook website for your internal org. And then they can start testing the components directly in. And they can, there's even plugins for storybook that run unit tests. So like QA can go and actually test the components like fundamentally and then test the unit tests or run the unit tests and get the results directly in the storybook console. So it does have like a lot of really cool things, but I don't think I need it for my portfolio. No, I also think (laughs) that there are, that actually brought up something for me is that, uh, there are newer design tools that actually do the same thing, but also give you a lot more of the traditional design features that you're getting from something like a Zeppelin or a sketch. Um, but it's closer to kind of quote unquote closer to the metal of the code. Uh, one that we're using at my office is called Framer X. It's something that we're kind of starting to pick up earlier. And this was actually, it's interesting because this was actually something that was pushed by the designers Ah. Uh, to the developers. And they were saying, hey, can we use this thing? This thing is really cool. We like this a lot. Can, can we use this? Do you guys think this is okay? And, and of course, me being my skeptical self, I bring it up. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take a look at it. I guess it's just another design tool. Or whatever. No, Framework X is a freaking React app hmm. that loads React components in like this draggable, like designable little area. And like everything in there is actually a rendered React component. Like it's actual code hmm. that's rendered in the design tool. It's a it's a React TypeScript application, and whatever libraries you load in there, you actually have to load in. They have to be fully featured libraries, and so this blew my mind. It's actually perfect for the thing I'm working on at my office is that we're working on this kind of extension of our open source component library, uh, where we have these very kind of specific tools that apply to a lot of these specific smaller React apps that are kind of encapsulated in this one bigger app. Uh, it's a little bit of a, a complicated setup, but 
the Framer X software is perfect for this because you literally just load up the entire component library as it is. Hmm. And the designers can drag, draw, pull, draw, whatever. They can change uh, the actual props. They're not like changing CSS. They're cha- they, they can change the actual prop. Like, you know, headline name, Gregory Parsons' cool website or whatever. And it, it renders in the actual component itself. So, so they can actually neat. like test the length of text inside of your components. Yes, absolutely. That's cool. They can change That's the a CSS. a novel idea. That's a great idea. Code as design as code. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. So I don't know what else, what else do I got until you talk about yours. So the other thing that I did today was I actually uh, I'm not going to share the domain because all the content is not finished, but and I and it's public. But um, well, you t- I mean you t- you you have to test it. That's the only way. We talked about that yeah, last week. I, That's the only way to test it. Well, uh, yeah. I mean it is it is up there. Like I I uh, basically what I did is I needed to deploy. I knew I was going to deploy this to S3. I mean that's the whole point of Gatsby. You get like, right. the really cheap uh, web hosting. Um, so I knew that I was building it for Gatsby. Um, the only issue was, or sorry, for S3. The only issue with S3 is that you can't, without assigning your domain to Route 53 and then generating an SSL cert, even if it's like one of their own AWS certs that are like free, basically, you can't put an SSL on S3 websites without pointing your domain or, or validating your domain within AWS. Oh. And then generating a do- like a cert for it, and then attaching it. It seems like a lot. It's not actually that much work, but um, yeah, you you kind of have to go through all those things to get the cert within AWS to attach to S3. Now, that's if you want just S3 purely serving your website, which you can do for really small stuff. But like, I saw an article today about the performance of S3 across like different um, edge locations, and it's. It's not like horrible. Obviously, it's S3, but it's technically slower than like CloudFront, which is why oh, CloudFront was designed as right. a CDN. The problem with CloudFront that I've dealt with many, many times in my life is um, there's a lot of good things about CloudFront. Like it's free for one, basically, unless you have a ton of traffic. The costs of scale based on how much traffic you have, how much throughput you put through the CloudFront network, how often you invalidate, and how often you essentially how much data you're putting into the CloudFront edge locations and how much you're pulling out of it is what you could charge for. There's one trick expensive cost if you need like a legit website. If you want a custom domain name on CloudFront and you want it to have SSL, you have to pay $600 a month. What? Yes, because and it actually makes sense. It seems insane. Like, why would you want to do that? But what they're actually doing is they're propagating your custom cert to every edge location oh, on CloudFront. Yeah, because it's not just one CloudFront. Every it's all single, the CloudFronts. Every single CloudFront server has to have your cert on it. Every cloud. Every single part of the cloud has All to have clouds. your cert on it. So there's that. And then they have to manage that and juggle that across their entire network with Route 53. And every time that you request, like if you imagine what CloudFront actually is, this is a bunch of like, it's a it's basically a bunch of really fast mem-cached other, other, other S3 people's buckets. Computers, yes. Well, it's like, S, it's like S3 buckets that are extremely cached. Yes. And then they use Route 53 to resolve all those like custom domain names inside of CloudFront or all Route 53. They give you one for free, but they essentially have to associate all of those domain names across all their edge locations with your SSL cert because the cert has to match the domain name. That's why $600 a month, essentially. Um, So instead of doing that, I set up S3. Wait, you don't have $600 a month? No, not for the port. No. Just just to run run a domain. (laughs) 
That's not no. even the whole site. That's just to just to make sure the domain well, is up. There's there's a lot of other we could talk about CloudFront one day, but there's a lot of other like really unique things that CloudFront does. Like you can have multiple origins on the same domain, the same uh, distribution. What? So you can essentially like you can really you can reverse proxy an API, like an Nginx API server on the same domain as your web server. So That's you can bananas. avoid cores. With just CloudFront. That's bananas. Like there's all kinds of crap that it can do. Like it is really, really powerful. Um, it is worth the money if you're actually using it in production for like a real product. Like it's worth, CloudFront is worth it. Um, so there's that. But then what I did instead of going through the $600 is there's the CDN called Key CDN that um, a tech director I used to work with always raved about it. Uh, it is actually really good. Um, the, the setup was not super easy to understand, um, but the feature that I was using is beta, so I'll give them a pass. And they had documentation on it. I just didn't understand how it worked. Um, some of the more complex domain stuff um, always gets me, and then I basically have to um, I have to like relearn it every single time I get into it. But basically, um, what I did was Hover is my what owns my domain, and with Hover, you can set up what are called alias records. And alias records are not actually something that really exists in DNS servers. There's only like a f some of the major DNS uh, providers like Cloudflare and um, Hover and a few other ones provide these things. But they're essentially C names that are aliases to another site. And you typically can't do that with the Apex domain of a domain. So if your domain is like albertpark.com, Without having a dub 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 in front of it, you can't forward just albertpark.com to another site using an alias, using a C name, because that basically breaks the rules of how DNSs work, because the top level domain has to remain at the registrar for the registrar to work properly. So Hover has the ability for you to bypass this, and so does Route 53, and so does like a bunch of other providers, but in AWS it's called an alias. So you can create an alias, a C name to another domain name. Um, but it's an alias record. Um, I'm, I'm getting a little bit detailed here and I could be slightly wrong, but that's the way that I understand it. And alias records are like not something that domains typically support. It's, it's turtles all the way down. It's, 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 it's fun stuff. So what I had to do was I set up an alias record for the top level domain of my site without dub, dub, dub. And I pointed it at key CDN's distribution, essentially the domain name for my bucket, essentially my my CDN bucket on their service. But then in order for that domain to resolve on my domain name, you have to go into key CDN and you have to set up basically an allowed um, resolver. So you have to basically say like, albertpark.com is allowed to retrieve content from my CDN because otherwise people will jack your images. Yeah. So they 403 every image that isn't on an allowed domain list if it's requesting an image from your CDN. Yeah, it's a whitelist. It's like a whitelist. So there's a, there's a, it's like domain... It's like CDN spoofing or some term. I don't know. So they basically have that protection. Um, so I had to set that up so that the domain would work. And then I had to set up um, a zone alias, which allows you to create, a. it's essentially the same concept that CloudFront had that I just explained, where you need to have a custom domain name for your CloudFront bucket for like your CDN. But that uh, alias is called a zone alias in key CDN. I had a ton of trouble setting that up because if you don't have a DNS record on Hover that allows that domain to point to your bucket within key CDN, they basically do a dig record against it, validate that that record is there, 
and then they allow you to create an alias for it. But once you do all of that, all that crazy work, the domain works and points to KeyCDM, but you have no SSL. Oh, dear. So then if you're like, okay, well, the last thing that I wanted, the whole reason why I went to KeyCDM is I wanted SSL, right? $600 a month to get custom SSL and a custom domain name on CloudFront. I don't want to pay that, blah, blah, blah. KeyCDN allows you to use a shared cert, which is kind of what CloudFront does by itself, except you can only access the distribution ID, which is the distribution URL with SSL. If you try to point, this is why, if you try to point, and this is a great lecture on DNSs, but if you try to point your domain name, albertpark.com, at uh, CloudFront with a custom, with with their SSL certs, you try to say HTTPS, albertpark.com points at the CDN, it'll 403 you. Because that is not actually a domain that AWS understands. Because when you hit, essentially when you hit CloudFront, you're hitting like a shared server that then points you at certain other buckets. It's other instances of the same thing. It's like, yeah, they're little subdomains of CloudFront.com, right? There's like a distribution ID, D74253, whatever, some hash. And then .cloudfront.com is your distribution. But that will actually 403 if you don't have that set up. It's the same thing with KeyCDN. So once I set that up, I was able to change. Oh, sorry, what I was getting at is if you use the KeyCDN distribution URL by itself, which is like project.kxcdn.com or something, if you okay using that domain name, like all you're doing is hosting some assets on WordPress and you don't really care what the URL is, it's like hidden to the site, you can use their shared SSL cert and it'll say like HTTPS, whatever, project.keycdn.com or whatever, right? Um, all of that will work properly, except you won't be able to have a custom domain. So when you set up the, when you, when you set up the zone record or the zone alias, you can then go in and use Let's Encrypt. And what they do on their backend is they actually generate you and validate you a Let's Encrypt cert for your domain name and then replicate it to KeyCDN by magic. Oh, nice. By freaking magic. Like Black once you once magic. you connected the, the zone alias and they understood what your custom domain name was, it said, oh, redeploying your bucket or your CDN. And then it configured it with the SSL cert with the domain, the domain name match, boom, green, green bar, green lock. Bananas. So it's pretty crazy. Their CDN is really dope. Um, we don't really have advertisers, but they for sure are one. KeyCDN. <laughs> yeah, they're Halls. really cool. The other cool thing that they do that's nice for scrappy, um, you know, upstart gentlemen like us is that they basically work on credits. So instead of you paying like a certain amount of money per month for your CDN, they base it on um, like a minimum charge of $49 a year. And then they basically subtract from the $49 like a dollar per terabyte or something like that. Oh, and then it's like a countdown. I think I have one point. No, it's like 1.22 terabytes of transfer for $49. So as long as my site doesn't get hit for tr- 5 trillion requests between now and the end of the year, I'll, I'll just pay $49 a year for the CDN. But if it's more, the they SSL. just charge you more? Uh, you can enable automatic billing. If I didn't because I want to see like if I get DDoSed or something and I all of a sudden get like a ton of traffic, I I want it to fail because it's, yeah. it's just my portfolio. So like I, I can renew myself. So you can either auto-renew or manually renew. Gotcha. But the minute that you run out of money, your site goes to a 403 denied. So you have to keep an eye on it. You can set up an email notification to tell you when you're getting low. um, And then you can hopefully not let that happen. Um, So yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, All of that was very confusing Mm -hmm. to set up. It took me the better part of um, like this morning, like three or four hours to set it up. 36 minutes. 
No, it was actually like two to three hours just because I was- 42 minutes. No, I was trying to figure out all the weird the weird um, stuff. Oh, the other part that threw me off too is that the minute that you set up an alias record for the top level domain, albertpark.com to point at KeyCDN, you lose the ability to use Hover's, uh, Hover's own servers that allow you to do forwarding. So typically on a domain provider, you can say like forward this subdomain to this other place. You mean for emails or for the domain? The domain itself. Oh. oh emails oh. still work. Ooh. But yeah, the domain, you can say like www.albertpark actually points at, redirects to albertpark.com and you remove that ugly dub dub dub. Right. But the minute that you create an alias record, I actually called them. So the other thing about Hover, which is like our second sponsor, I guess, is that you call they're not, Hover. They're not actually a sponsor. We can't say that unless they're actually Oh, sponsor. you can't? Yeah, no. you no. Oh yeah, well they're we not like a sponsor. Hover. They're not paying us. We like them a lot. We use their products, but they're not paying us. We would like for them to pay us. Pseudo sponsor. Hover, call us. Pseudo unverified, uh, non-domain checked sponsor. Just kidding. Anyways, um, you basically can set up like a domain forward, um, but that doesn't work the minute you set up a C name. Oh dear. So what I had to do is I had to set up a C name for www my website to point at an S three bucket. That is basically a redirection bucket. So oh, I created geez. another. It's actually pretty neat that it works. But S3, uh, there's so many cool things about Amazon that you that are like useful. But you can set up an S3 bucket that has no content. That essentially, whenever that bucket is hit, all it does is it takes that domain name and forwards you to another website. So I set up a bucket that's dub 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 the site, and then it redirects to the SSL version of the site. Can you do that with a lambda? Um, maybe. Yeah, you could, but then you would have node code that would be like window.location equals. And, and you could do it with like Python or something too, right? You can, but you, then you'd have to run a server. I mean, this way S3 is running and it just does it for you. There's other services that will redirect the other way because I guess for some people like the naked domain to go to dub 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 for like businesses that are a little more formal. I did not want that. I wanted the dub 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 to go away and never come back for my site. Yeah. But some brands require like www dot because for business reasons it's better. Because some people actually type it in and they don't. Yeah. They they get confused if it's not there. Yeah. So like on mine, if you one thing that's a little bug that I can't really fix is if you type www or https www dot my website, it won't redirect you because S three is not listening on SSL. So like there's little things like that. That's a lot. That's a lot for one site, man. That is literally setting up a domain That's so that how it you works, have though. that yeah. is all the things that you have to do to get SSL, which is pretty common, and boost your search results in Google. Like Google likes it when you have SSLs, mm-hmm. even if it's less encrypt. The redirects. You want the redirect because you want people to go to www.yourwebsite to get to whatever domain you want to have visible. If you want to go the other way and you want to be www.albertpark.com, then it's so much easier. Um, there's services that you can literally just point at an IP address and it'll take your yes. your naked and point it to www for yes. you in your DNS records. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go the other way, which is the hard way. Um, all of this can be solved with CloudFront. If you just if you just pay the six hundred dollars, CloudFront will redirect to SSL for you, and it'll it'll also allow you to create um, SSL redirect rules within CloudFront. Or, yeah. Sorry, like domain redirects inside of CloudFront itself, and then CloudFront becomes like a little mini web server for you. Yes. We've run that setup a couple of times uh, for jobs and projects that we have done. And it's actually worked really well mm-hmm. because it's almost like a not non-server server. Yeah. It's actually really nice. You just got some flat files and then they just have to be at a place in S3 and it gets served up on a domain. It looks pretty, really pretty. Yeah. So it's a good, that's a good setup, but it is a financial outlay that not everybody has access to. So that is part of our jobs as developers is to make that decision for ourselves for every project. So Yeah. There's one other thing you wanted me to talk about. 
Yes, tell and us. And then I'm done, and this might even be like the whole episode of mine. But um, <laughs> the one the one other thing that was complicated was the connect form that basically sends an email to myself. Sending emails is really hard. Emails is hard. Emails is very hard because people can hack your thing. They can spam you. They can do all kinds of weird stuff. You don't want that spam in your life. So you can use Amazon SNS to send emails, but then you have to do a bunch of work in Lambda to allow the Lambda to access SNS through IAM roles and allow it to send emails and do all the stuff. You have to verify your domain. Oh, that, that part's s- hard though. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? The verifying the domain? Uh, compared to all the stuff you just did to get your domain up and running. Oh, well, that, that, would have been, that would have been a requirement no matter what, unless you pay the 600 bucks. But if you want to use SNS to send emails, which you can... The, essentially, you make a post request to the Lambda server, and then the Lambda server then will send an email to you, to whatever whatever email you want. You can do that as long as you validate the email that you're sending from and to. Um, but Hover has another really cool thing where you can create, for $5 a year, you can create a single email address that forwards anywhere you want it to. So if your website is, you know, albertpark.com, you can say hello at albertpark.com. You can have that email address. Whenever that email address is emailed, it'll forward it to whatever email address you want. No one will know what that email address is. So you don't have to put like your public email on everything. Yeah. The problem though is that... When you answer back, it will go back as the private one, right? Yeah, it will. Um, You can change that if you set up... Like if you have like a legit... If you pay... There's $20 a year for an actual email server on Hover, but I don't want to pay that. No. You can do the, the... the G Suite for business, which I think is six dollars per user per month. Yeah, but I mean that's and that gives you custom domain on your email. But that's like six dollars a month versus five dollars a year. So what I did yeah. is I just set up the forward where hello at the website forwards to my email address, and then what I did there's an interesting other thing is that if, if you use SNS to send the email, you have to do a bunch of configuration to make that work, and I didn't really want to go through that. There's another service that's really cool called Postmark. And Postmark is essentially like mail, Mandrill or Maildrill or whatever it is. Mailgun. Uh, Mailgun. Uh, yeah. There's lots of these services that do this, but a lot of them, um, and, and Postmark as well, are very conscientious of spam. So they make you validate things, but you only validate it with them. Um, and Postmark allows you to have uh, under 100 emails per month, I think, without paying. And you only have to validate... The, the single email, you have to validate that you own the email. Like it'll email it and you have to reply and click a button. But you can't, what the problem is, is that if I put up the hello at, say the hello at albertpark.com and someone just blank, blankly emails you that, emails that uh, address, Postmark will block it. They won't, they won't deliver it for you unless you pay them and then you validate the full domain and you have an actual mail server. So what I did is something that I've done in the past where you used Postmark to say, send an email to your email address from your email address, which matches the Postmark rules because it's like you're sending yourself an email. Yeah. But then you put the reply to as the person's email so that when it comes to your Gmail, because it's forwarding to your Gmail account, you reply, it will reply to the original person that emailed you. But if they look at the old chain of the original chain of the email, it'll show that it went to and from helloalberpark.com. So it's a little weird, but... It's a little hacky, but it works. It works. I can reply to the person who contacts me. And then the other thing I did is I put a CAPTCHA on the uh, form so I don't get spammed. But technically, someone could uh, just curl the endpoint. That's true, yeah. That's usually how the spam 
But that's the thing is Postmark will catch that and they'll flag my account and they'll stop sending the emails. So it's good to use an email service, any of them, like SNS, Mailgun, all of them. It's just some of them are a little more extreme about like they will not send you emails unless you validate the email address. Yeah. Like Mailgun. Which doesn't. makes sense. They should do that. They should do that. And Postmark will eventually want you to do that. And I, I probably will. It's just like I don't expect to get – it's just a convenience thing to show – people that I know how to build forms and then I know how to build services. So it's like, I don't expect to get a lot of people contacting me through the contact form. I just have it there. You should have, you should have it uh, forward to your Twitter. <laughs> I mean, you might be able to do that. You could probably set up an integration to have emails that come to a certain tag or email box or something. No, it's just more work. Maybe you, you like read, I don't like post a tweet with the body. I don't know. Something like there's, there's gotta be some sort of email to Twitter integration that you could do. I think that would be interesting. Yeah. The only other thing I was thinking about doing before, um, so you, for most bots, they're going to try to pull the front insight. And if they see a form, they'll just submit the form over and over again, which would waste your hundred emails and potentially spam you and get you blocked by postmark. Um, I kind of want to add rate limiting to the Lambda, the express Lambda, but your problem is you have to have Redis to do that. And I don't want to host Redis. In order to do um, rate limiting, you have to have a cache for the amount of IP addresses that hit this particular domain. Can you not host it on the AWS? You can. You can use ElastiCache, but and there's a free tier of ElastiCache. I might add it, but it's like another feature. Let's see if I get spammed. That's a first. nice to have. It's a nice to have. That's pretty I mean, far down the list. Hopefully, none of you listeners are going to spam me. If you are, I'll just turn off the feature, and we can't have nice things. Can't have nice things. But we for have, now, it's all there. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. That's a pretty uh, pretty solid amount of work. Yeah, I've been working on it, you know, a little bit, uh, but basically uh, over the weekends for like three weekends now, and it's pretty close to being done. I think like two more weekends of just like CSS fit and finish and adding content and then writing the first blog post, I think it'll be ready to share the link and put it on like my LinkedIn and stuff and yeah, have we'll, it there. Yeah, we will definitely have links to that in our show notes when it's ready to go. It's not quite ready. We're still doing yeah. some testing. I'm I'm faithfully helping you out with that. Yeah, you, you were yelling at me about the Firefox thing, and I was like, yeah, you know, if only I didn't have other things I had to do today. I mean, I would have fixed it. That's that's part of QA. I think, well, I never even opened it in Firefox, and I think I don't, I think it's that Firefox either doesn't support CSS custom properties or it doesn't support the it's definitely data. A CSS, it's definitely a CSS well, thing. It's probably, I want to say, I don't actually know. Off the top of my head, it sounds like the data property is the way is is I think it's the data there prob- because I'm pretty sure CSS variables in and of themselves work correctly yeah 100% in well it has so. to because the dark mode relies on css variables yeah and they have a they have the reader mode built in now which is a css variable thing too mm-hmm. where they like strip out everything that's not the text yeah if the if the css properties weren't working it would be white because that's what i had originally when uh, it would be the light theme because that's what it was when i was using sas variables yeah so early on i was thinking well these CSS custom properties are just custom variables that get written into the CSS like they were hard-coded. Yeah. So it's like you could almost imagine that SAS would compile to CSS and then the variables for the for the variables would end up being just... In the CSS. In the CSS, and they'd work just like normal, but no. No. Specifically, the CSS parsers explicitly ignore CSS properties that are assigned to SAS variables. I don't know. I mean, again, I don't really know if I actually need SAS variables because all I... We'll see... I don't really know it how to sounds, do yeah, CSS. It sounds like a... I might not need it. It sounds like two compilers both not wanting to do the well, thing. Well, they, they... I read the... There's a post. They intentionally block the variables from being assigned to CSS. Yeah, because how do you... That's almost like a race condition. Like, well, no, variables... They, because the SAS variables get compiled. That's why I think it should work. But there's, they had reasons why it doesn't work. Because there's certain edge cases where it won't work. 
But the SAS variables are basically compiled and then written into the raw CSS at build time. And then the CSS custom properties then kick off at runtime. So it could change. So you could have collisions. I guess that's their reasoning, but not really, because the way that I would see it is that there would be a pass over the SAS to compile a flat CSS file. It's literally the same thing as if I typed it. And then the two themes, the dark and light theme, are different CSS properties assigned to the root. So I would think it would work, but it doesn't. <laughs> so um, I don't know how much I need SAS variables now. I might just switch to straight CSS modules, which is what I'm already styling and everything with anyways. Might be a way to do it. I don't know if I, it's just a syntax different, difference to remove SAS, unless I need mix-ins or need um, breakpoints. Breakpoint do, well, the, but you could do defining breakpoints is actually super convenient because you define breakpoints once and then you just reference them as variables. But you can do that with CSS variables now, so. I think you can do it with CSS modules. I don't know if you can do it because variables are literally just variables, but I don't know. I don't well, know that's enough the, about that's the thing. You write, uh, so you write your, whatever your breakpoints are, as you define the actual values, you know, 768px mm-hmm. or whatever, and you assign that to a name. And then when you go to write the add media, yeah. actual media query rule definition itself, instead of writing 768 every single time, you just yeah. do it once. That's I mean, the, that makes sense, but you can't, you, with, with a mix-in, you can actually write like the whole you write media the whole breakpoint. Yeah. yeah, you could do that. That's the, that's the other way to do it. Um, I don't know. I'm going to learn all this stuff because I might need to do a little bit of CSS. CSS is... Uh, I want to use this. The, I've, I would have asked you to help me, but like I wanted to learn CSS a bit, like enough to build my own pro- You have portfolio. to struggle through it. You absolutely have to struggle through CSS to really yeah. learn the ways. That's what I've been doing. That's cool. We've definitely just spent an entire episode talking about your site. That's amazing. We'll talk about yours next time. We'll talk about mine next time. It'll be it'll be uh, Iron Man One, Iron Man Two, yeah, or Avenger. I don't know, Civil War, Infinity War. I don't. I don't, I don't Come on, analogies. <laughs> so I don't know. That's pretty good. That's that's a that's a solid amount of work. Um, the portfolio site for developers actually a surprisingly involved amount of work, even if it's super basic compared to what they actually do in real life. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to build features like the command palette can literally uh, redirect to other pages. So you can say like, the goal is to have like command shift P and then just, and then it would auto-focus the input field and then you would have auto-complete. It's kind of like Alfred is the idea. Right, so but in you the website, type, so you got to capture the keystrokes and some people yeah. don't like that. And Well, this React Hotkeys does it and I don't care if people don't like it because that's my website. That's fine. So it captures the hotkeys and then you would type like go and then it would say, and then it would auto-complete like go to connect, go to whatever. And I can, I, I built it so that I can define custom actions. So like later on, I don't know, I could be like... You can manage all that in Contentful? No, those are all managed in code. Oh, okay. But because it, it's I mean, basically it just a combination of like all the paths that uh, Gatsby already knows about. So Gatsby already knows your hard paths. So then you just read the hard paths and generate Go statements to each page. And then I was going to think maybe if there, I mean, really what else you can do in a command palette? Like you can open, like you can literally uh, say go to like blog post or go to most recent blog post and it could it could have the most recent dated blog post as the navigate to. So... Yeah, that's a really neat feature and it's clever in the way that pretty much any developer is going to recognize and immediately go, I know what that is. That's a really cool feature. I know exactly yeah. how to use that because I've seen that in my code editor of choice. Yeah. So that's a pretty cool one. I, I, I think that's pretty neat and we'll we'll keep an eye on that for next time. We went an entire episode talking about your site, so I guess we'll talk about mine next week. Yeah. I don't think I've 
I've made a good amount of progress on mine, but I haven't run into as many things as you, as you have. Well, I also gonna, haven't deployed mine either. So yeah, you're gonna rely on you know the, the the infrastructure engineer to help you with that. I'm sure. Maybe, maybe. I also you should, you might just simplify mine. You should No, you should just deal with it and figure out how to do it. Uh, I also just might not care. I think that for me, I really wanted to build something that just gets out of the way of the content for the most most part. So um, the choices I made in my tech stack reflect that and. The, maybe some of the styling choices I made also reflect that as well, but we'll go into that a little bit more next week. Yeah, I think the only other feature I have to build, just because I don't want to talk about mine next week too, unless it's an update, I need to build... So Contentful has the ability to do webhooks when there's, um, whenever there's content published, either preview or prod, and then it can actually trigger a... I guess it triggers a an event through GitHub, which will trigger, trigger Travis for CircleCI, Oh, like a yeah, like a webhook to like a build hook. Yeah, yeah, like a build hook. But I mean, you're gonna have to get like really good in contentful about not publishing every single thing you do, because then it's gonna trigger a build every time. Yeah, that's tricky. So I don't know. I gotta see how that. Maybe I'll do something in Travis that has like a like a rate. Well, in Circle CI probably that has like a rate limiter that says like if there's been a build too recently, like don't run. I wonder if there's a way to like check specific content types. Something like that. Maybe the, depends this, what comes through on the webhook, but yeah, maybe. Yeah, check on what comes through there, but that'll be interesting. Definitely keep us posted on that one. Yeah, I want I want to be able to publish a blog post and just have it boom be on the site. I don't want to have to like trigger a build. That's the last piece. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Using a CMS with Gatsby to get that going does I mean, involve it, the use it of a webhook, the, so that's a lot of tricky. That's something that I've run into, and I'll talk about more next week as well. Yeah, it has the ability to trigger um, Netlify, all of them, like everything. Contentful is pretty freaking dope. They it's pretty really good. thought it through. It's pretty fully featured. Yeah. So it's good. So you're going to ask me what my pick is. I am going to ask you what your pick is. You've learned, Greg. Over 25 episodes, you've learned. Uh, uh, I said a lot of the things that would be techie picks already. Pick something that's not techie. Oh, man. Um, oh, man. I've been watching a lot of Chef's Table lately. You already picked Chef's Table before. Damn. <laughs> is there what a new is- season? If it's a new season, you can say that. No, but I mean, that was it. I also watched... Did you finish The Expanse? I did a while ago. Was there anything else that you've been watching? I did watch... Oh, it's right here. Always Be My, my oh Maybe. Oh my God, you stole it from me. Oh, How? All right, then you talk. That, then How? I'm, I'm, I just watched it today while I was waiting for it's you. It's amazing. It's pretty good. It's so hilariously good. Yeah, it was so, really good. Always can, Be My you, Maybe. You can choose it as your pick. And that, I, I was literally going to choose that well, as my pick. Well, now I get an out. I don't know to talk about pick. Oh my goodness. We, we're on the same page. Oh, man. Clairvoyance. So, tell us about it. Always Be My Baby, uh, for those who don't know. A little romantic comedy written by one Ali Wong and one Randall Park. It is hilarious and is super well written. And Ali Wong, if you haven't seen her stand-up, her stand-up is like my sides hurt. I was laughing so hard at her stand-up. Yeah, I'm going to watch it. She, I mean, she I has two, I think. One of them she did while she was, I think, six or seven months pregnant. Yeah, I watched that one. That one was I don't think I've seen the new freaking one. hilarious. Yeah. The newer one, freaking hilarious. And she's taken a lot of that and also written now a rom com. And she's one of the she's one of the leads. Randall Park is one of the leads. Uh, you'll recognize him from he's on Fresh Off the Boat. He's been in a bunch of other things. But apparently this this script has been a joke between them for like ten years. Oh, wow. They've been joking about having a all Asian American lead rom-com for like literally their entire careers like well wouldn't it be funny if we had you know basically two two of the only recognizable asian actors mm-hmm. in, in a rom-com 
and they finally did it. And it's everything you could imagine it would be and more. A lot of uh, interesting storylines. Um, should we say who shows up? No, save it, people. Go go watch it. There's a very interesting... Yeah, there's a, well there's known, a cameo. There's a cameo, and it's the perfect cameo. Yeah. I was I fell on the floor laughing when he showed up. It was pretty good, yeah. Uh, it, it, there's basically a dinner scene at a, at a restaurant, and someone that you know shows up, and it is so funny because it's so on point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's extremely well, well-written, super, super funny, definitely still in that rom-com vein, so if you uh, have someone you want to go see it with or Netflix and chill with, yeah, definitely worth watching. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. I guess we don't have any other picks. That was that was that was my pick. Well, you wanted to there's... do you wanted to do shorter episodes, so we're doing it. <laughs> we're at eighty three minutes. That's well, you wanted to do ones that weren't two it's hours. Definitely, it's definitely a little bit shorter. Yeah, if we ever cross into that like with that first number of links says two, that's a problem. So like, yeah, so we're right last on... week we were at one fifty three. So we're 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 making good time here. We're making progress in our lives. We're getting yeah. better at this podcasting thing. Greg, where can people find you on the internet? For now, just on Twitter and GitHub. And GitHub, you're you're at Gregorski on GitHub as well, right? Both, yeah. Uh, is your code for your site on GitHub or no? Have we not? It is, but I haven't made it public yet because I just want to. I mean, like all the environment variables are not in there. Um, I just want to comb over it and just. It's just not think, done. It's not done. No, no. I just want to think about if there's any like vulnerabilities or like if someone's perusing the portfolio, they figure out that they can like spam my email or hijack some. I don't know. Just wanna, just wanna it's also it it's also not done. You want to like you know you want to clean up a little bit when you have guests over. So that's kind of, uh, yeah. it, it'll you'll be able to see it when it's ready to be seen. How's that? Yeah. So you can find him on Twitter and on GitHub at Krakorski. I'm at Al Park. Uh, what is my GitHub? I always forget my GitHub. It's Albert Dash Park. I don't have anything on there really worth worth checking out. But I guess on, I'm you got to get on that, man. My uh, portfolio stuff is not ready yet, so. Um, definitely. I don't even think I have it checked in, to be honest. It might just be living on my machine. I'm living dangerously. You're living no very damaged, dangerously. You need oh, to- man. You know, it rains every once in a while, so you never know. It's kind of... It's cloudy outside. Your computer, it's, might, oh, man. your computer might not oh, work. Oh, man. My computer might not make it. That's not good. So yeah. I might actually check that in before I leave here. But uh, I am at Al Park. The show is at a public function. We post there usually very early on Tuesday mornings, uh, Pacific Standard Time when the episode goes up because that's when it's done. You can find us there. You can find us on the web, publicfunction.show. This is episode 25, 26th mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you'll find us at publicfunction.show backslash 025. Mm-hmm. All the episodes, all the show notes, all the pictures of our faces are on the site as well. You can find us there. You still promised me a photo shoot. I need new, I need new we, photos. Uh, we can do that. I'm in the process of a- acquiring some more equipment to help us with that. This is the thing about photography. We can talk yeah. about that next time. <laughs> Anyways. I haven't, I haven't quite got to the point where I'm buying lenses yet because those are several hundred dollars a piece, but I'm buying other several stuff. Several hundred? Um, I was eyeballing this. There's a Sigma or... I don't know if it's Sigma. It's one of the one, but it was like, a, it's the 70 to 200 fixed, no zoom. It's the Tamron one. There's like a Tamron and a Sigma, whatever. But they basically, it's the it's the knockoff of the Nikon or Canon 7200 non-movable zoom lens with the F2.8 aperture. They had that on sale on the drop recently. Yeah, I have talked myself off the list of, of buying the Fuji 7200 equivalent um, yeah. because that's literally the most, the the most expensive. Yeah. Well... It's it like is, the most versatile portrait lens. It is, but... On a full frame. 
Which you have a full frame, don't no, you? No, the food, the oh. XT2 is not, Fuji does not make a full frame. They oh. have actually explicitly said they will never make a full frame because they're like, you don't need it. Well, anyway, okay. my point is <laughs> um, the Fuji 7200 equivalent is literally the most expensive, biggest, probably best glass that they make. Yeah. I have talked myself off the ledge. I was this close to buying one. How much is it? It retails for, I think, $2,000. Yeah, that's how much I was very, very close to The Nikon to with, the, with the ED film, on that, like the ED film coating on it is like two grand. But the thing is, if I'm doing portraits, which I think that that's kind of what I'm leaning towards in a lot of the need it, photography that I do, I can, th there are other Fuji Primes you can also that are get actually a 70 really, prime. really good. The 70 Prime is really good. So Fuji makes a 56 1.2. Two, which is the 85 miller mm. equivalent. Yeah, like and around that is, 70 is That is good. literally probably the second best lens that they make. Yeah. If it it's 1.4 and basically 84 uh, millimeters, that is a portrait lens. In the kind of limited amount of testing that I've done, the 85 millimeter length is kind of one that I tend to hover around. That and 50 are the mm -hmm. two. But the thing is, I don't want the, the 50 in the APS-C size is equivalent to like a 35. There apparently is a 33 F1. Yeah, Nikon has a thirty next year. Nikon so has I gotta a wait for that thirty-five f one point two. But that's a full frame thirty-five. The yeah. the APS-C. They also have a digital. No, they have fifty. They also have a thirty-five um, f one point two. But they probably have like a fifty f like one might, four. Or no, something it might like that still too. be. It might still be for a full frame. But it's one of the new EDVR Nikon like ones that has the, mo the motion reduction. Yeah, those things are really expensive. I've had to like definitely step away, like, like put the credit card away several times before that, but we might we might follow that up later. But what was I saying? You oh, were- Other places to find us on the internet. Yeah, we just broke the, that's the post of, oh, show God. in the middle of the exit. Oh man, post show in the middle of the outro. Good luck with the editing. You know, it'll be fine. I'm really good at this stuff. Public Function Not Show, yep. find us there. Contact us there, Public Function Not Show backslash contact. You can also email us, hello at publicfunction.show. That is an email that is run by me. It goes to my phone. I will see a notification for every email that comes through. If you say something nice about us, I will read it on there. Yeah. And I'll say nice things about you back. So definitely email us there. Reach out to us on Twitter. Download us to your podcast player of choice. Interact with us on the Discord. Mm -hmm. Got to start saying that. That's one more thing that we're doing. We'll have links to the Discord as well. We've got a bunch of our friends... Uh, in there right now, we're having fun times. We like to post fun content in there if it's relevant. Also, I think cat gifts are going to start coming coming in there pretty soon because there are some cat gift fans in this site now. So if you like cat gifts, come to our Discord, hang mm -hmm. out with us, ask us questions. Be like, Greg, where's the site? Greg, mm -hmm. where's the portfolio site? Why aren't you done yet? Greg, mm -hmm. I want to see it. Greg, what if people came to the Discord and started asking you about CSS? What would you do? I would ignore them. Why, why would you do that? I wouldn't ignore I don't know. Why would you do that? Yeah, I, don't I, I I wouldn't do that. Anyway, I won't ignore you. We will be I'll back. Just, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll answer incorrectly. Good luck. <laughs> That's what I'll do. <laughs> oh, sabotaging the youth. Oh, it's terrible. No, no, they should know better. They should know better than to ask Greg about. Well, CSS. they should know better than to trust what I say. Okay. Well, if he says something incorrect, I will correct him mm -hmm. with the correct information about CSS, or I'll show you where to go. Yep. Maybe a better resource to go. But anyway, check us out there, Greg. Right. You have anything else to hit us up on? No. All right. We'll see you next week. <laughs>